Henry Wanyoki is, was, a Kenyan long-distance runner. He was so gifted as a teenager that his times in the 5,000 and 10,000 meters approached world-class in high school. Before graduating high school, everybody in the Kenyan running circles knew that this was going to be another in the long, long line of long-distance Kenyan titans. But alas, it was not to be. On May 1st, 1995, Wanyoki suffered a stroke as he slept, and it robbed his sight. He said, I went to bed, a normal person. The following day, I awoke and found myself in darkness. And from there, he tumbled into an oppressive despair. After years of trouble and hardship and discouragement and depression, someone suggested that he take up running again, this time with the assistance of a guide. So he did. At first, he didn't know that there was such a thing as running when you're blind. At first, he was afraid, and he was constantly unsure of his next step. He would step and fall and slip. But his guide, tethered to him, would guide him along. After a while, a problem arose. Henry got so good, again, that they couldn't find a guide fast enough who would be able to keep up with him. Henry became a world-class, blind, distance runner and broke records in the 2000 Sydney Paralympics. Michelle Hamilton wrote a story on Henry in One Runner's World a few years ago. And she described something, she said something Henry said that jumped out at me. Henry said, vision is more powerful than sight. Let me say that again. Vision is more powerful than sight. What we need today more than sight is vision. Sight merely looks at problems, circumstances, roadblocks. Vision looks beyond. Sight merely sees the problems and says, we can't do anything about that. Vision sees greater and loftier things. We Christians need to understand that our vision is more powerful than our sight. See, when we look only with our eyes, we're going to see piles of hardship, suffering, distractions, temptations, and trouble. We're going to see dark elements. We're going to grow fearful and we'll stumble unsure of our next step. This series from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 20, as we consider the armor of God, is designed to give us vision. To see up and over the circumstances that come against us on a daily basis. To help us see that with the eyes of faith, we have unparalleled resources that have been given to us from Jesus. If we only see our circumstances, we will not have vision for how great God is. 
The evil one loves to destroy. And if we see only with our eyes, we're going to think he's going be, to beat us. But we have vision for something greater. Today, I hope our vision expands and that the helmet of salvation described in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 16, 17 gives us unfettered confidence, unparalleled confidence. For our brief time together, we are going to remind ourselves that vis- the vision we have in Christ is more powerful than the sight of our troubles. And my goal is for all of us to walk out of here more confident than we walked in. We're going to see that our assured salvation must stir confidence in us. Our assured salvation must stir confidence. Let's read it together. I'm going to read beginning in verse 10 of Ephesians chapter 6, and I'll read down to verse 17. Remember, I'm reading it for context. Verse 17 is all that we'll focus on this morning. God's Word says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, And his shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And here's our section for this morning. Just six words. And take the helmet of salvation. Let's pray. Lord, every one of us, every one of us in this room will be somewhere for eternity. And I pray, I pray that you would encourage those who trust you to see it's worth it. And I pray that you would challenge those who don't. I pray that you would help us each as Christians, to realize we have way more confidence because we should have way more confidence than we do because of what you've done. And I pray for those who are not Christians that they would have confidence that there is only one way. Lord, these are things that I want want the effect of this message to be, but I can't do that. To you I look. To you we look, Holy Spirit, come in power. In your name we pray, amen. Our assured or our certain salvation must stir confidence. Lord willing, I'll show you how with two simple 
points. First, there are three kinds of salvation. Three kinds of salvation. Before I get to that, a word or two about this helmet imagery. A soldier's helmet, obviously, was meant to protect his head. You can get a shot in the arm and a live, but one in the head, and it's not going to look too good. So, the soldier's helmet protected the whole head, including the sides and the back of the neck, and it was designed to protect against the blows that would come against the head. Because we all know that a head wound is often fatal. Now, we've said this many times throughout this series, and it's true here as well. The armor in Ephesians is an image Paul doesn't pick up primarily from Rome, but from Isaiah. We see in Isaiah, God depicted as God the warrior, the Lord of hosts. And the same pieces of armor he uses are now ours on loan via from Jesus. See, in Isaiah, we see the warrior God who fights for his people. I'll point it to you again in Isaiah 59, verse 17. This is God speaking, or Isaiah speaking about God. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing. We don't have those. He does. And wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. We can have that as well, but that's a different conversation. So the helmet of salvation is, 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 is something he gives to his people. So in this passage, we see in Isaiah 59, we see God as an armed warrior coming to fight against injustice and oppression. And the way he fights is in a most unconventional way. A few verses later, we read this, and a redeemer will come to Zion. The implication is a redeemer will come to fight in Zion and fight for Zion and fight for the people of God. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. This redeemer we know is Jesus Christ. He defeated sin and death by going into death's domain, killing it, and coming back. Jesus fought death on its own turf and won. And the armor he used in that battle is now ours. So therefore, our armor is battle-tested. Imagine having a piece of bulletproof glass and somebody says it's bulletproof, but it hasn't been tested. Are you going to get behind it? Don't recommend. Not when the bullets start flying. But that's not the way this armor is. Our armor now is battle-tested. The helmet in verse 17 is battle-tested. It is the helmet of salvation. Or another way to render it is the helmet which is salvation. So there's this idea that Paul is communicating here that this salvation that we enjoy is our means of protection. So we are protected from the attacks of the evil one by the salvation of the Lord. Now before we examine how, I want to show you three different ways the word salvation is used in the New Testament. There is salvation past. There is salvation present, and there is salvation future. Let me show you. Salvation is sometimes described as past tense. For example, I have been saved. In Ephesians 2, we see this in this, this same book when we read, for by grace you have been saved. Past to that past tense, you have been saved. Through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast. So that's past tense. 
Sometimes salvation is described as present tense, as being saved. We see this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, that's present tense, ongoing present tense, it is the power of God. And then sometimes salvation is described in the future tense meaning I or we will be saved. Since, therefore, we read this in Romans chapter 5, we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall or will or will we, so this is the future, shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. So salvation is past, present, and future. So thinking about the helmet of salvation, which is it? Past, present, or future? It's all three. Think about it this way. If you're a Christian, you have already been saved from the penalty of sin. You have already been forever justified before God in the court of heaven and adopted into His family irrevocably. That has already happened. That is true. You are saved. But also, you are being saved. If you're a Christian, you are being saved even at this moment from the power of sin. The presence of sin is in your life, yes, but day by day as you follow Jesus, the power of sin is weakened incrementally. We fight the presence of sin as we are shaped more and more to the likeness of Jesus Christ by the power of the Spirit. So we are being saved or being preserved. Also, if you're a Christian, one day you will be saved fully and finally from even the presence of sin. When you are with Jesus, you will be glorified and completely free once and for all from the pollution of remaining sin. So the salvation we have, Christians, is past, it's present, and it's future. We, all, we, are, are, we are already saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. Friends, we're already united to Jesus Christ. An author I read this week said this, as a people who have been made alive with Christ, that's already happened, co-resurrected with Him when He rose, we rose, and co-exalted with Him, now we're seated at the right hand of God in in the heavenly places, believers have been delivered from the domain of the powers and participate with Christ in His power and authority over that realm. That is who we are already. For example, when we experience guilt because of remaining sin, that guilt does not threaten our justification before God. Why? Because Jesus died and rose from the dead. And when He died, we died. And when He rose, we rose. Therefore, we are free to be able to go to Jesus and repent from our sin. Otherwise, we would not be free and it would not be safe. But Jesus has opened the way so it is both free and safe. And at the same time, we long for a day that we will no longer struggle against sin. That sin that so easily entangles us. When our salvation will be full and final. But that day is not yet. For any of us in this room. John Newton, speaking of salvation and the effect on him, and said it better than I ever could, he said, I am not what I ought to be. I'm not what I want to be. 
I'm not what I hope to be in another world, but still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. So friends, that is the nature of salvation, past, present, future. Not just one realm, all realms of your life. Think about that. Think about your personal life. Everything past that you've done, that you regret, that you wish you could go back and change, that you would give anything for. Jesus has put that on himself and not made that a separation between you and him. Your past is now his past. That is the nature of our salvation. Your present. He won't abandon you. He won't leave you. He's not going to say, okay, I've given you the gospel. Go. No, like a top that spins for a little while, we would just spin and wobble and then fall over. That's not the nature of our salvation. He will preserve all those who are his. And then when we get to heaven, when we get to be with Jesus, we're not going to have to present our resume because none of our resumes are any good. We haven't loved others enough. We haven't loved him enough. But we can present our Lord's resume. That's the nature of our salvation, friends. And the protection it provides is unsurpassing against the wiles of the evil one. So back to our text. What does it say? And take the helmet of salvation. Take the helmet of salvation. Now, does that mean we should take salvation for ourselves, by ourselves, so implying that we save ourselves? No. Remember, that's not what, the way this works. That's not how salvation works. We just read in Ephesians 2 that by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Salvation is not a wage we've earned. So that's not what that means. Salvation, the helmet of salvation doesn't mean that we save ourselves by taking that salvation for ourselves? Or does it mean if we somehow don't take the salvation, we lose our salvation? No, it doesn't mean that either. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are His workmanship. He created us, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Is He going to let those for whom He's created good works Lose their salvation. If you're a Christian, you are his workmanship. And he doesn't just say, well, forget them. So do you see the logic? If you cannot lose your salvation, you can and must be, Christian, supremely confident. Your salvation, your assured salvation, must stir confidence in you. But what kind of confidence? Well, We've seen there are three kinds of salvation. There's only one kind of confidence. And we turn our attention in the time we have left to that kind of confidence. In a word, assurance. Our confidence is the assurance of our salvation. Another way to say it is this. We have, as Christians, an assurance that Jesus has saved us, past, present, future. 
So our confidence is not in our abilities, but our confidence is what Jesus has already done for us. That's the protection. That's the helmet. See, this is, where we, this is where we go wrong if we look at ourselves and our own resources and say, I don't have reason to be confident. The answer to that is true, you don't. You should be way more scared than you are because you're way weaker than you think. But that's always the way it is, no matter who we are, if we look at our own resources. But our confidence is not based on what we can do or are capable of. Our confidence is to be, is to be, be directed in a different place, on Jesus. And you might say, how can I know for sure that I should be confident that I'm really a Christian? Well, remember, here's a couple ideas. Here's a couple things just to... Just to Say to those who may be coming in doubting and wondering, focus on Jesus. Like we said last week, the amount of our faith is far less important than the object of our faith. The point is not how much or how strong, how much we believe in Jesus or how strong our faith in Jesus is. It's never that strong or never that big. The point is who our faith is in. Even if we have just this tiny little, let me think of an illustration, mustard seed, of faith in Jesus, that's enough. He and only He can save you. And He has never sent a sorrowful, repentant sinner away. Not once. Not once. Has anyone ever come to Him and He go, you know what? I'm full up with sinners here. Go sell your sinner sad stories somewhere else. Because we're done. It's not how it goes. How do we know? Well, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. Why? That whoever, whoever is one of those words that is precious. Because whoever will brook no exceptions, whoever offers no wiggle room, Whoever cannot, that word encompasses everyone. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So if you fall in the whoever category, pro tip, and you do, if you believe in Jesus, you will not perish and have eternal life. If you have, you should be more confident than you are. And you might think, well, okay, I have, but I'm not sure. Okay, let's look at our desires. If you want to please the Lord by obeying Him at any level, if you want to become more like Jesus, if you hate your sin, maybe you don't hate your sin enough, but if you hate your sin or dislike your sin at any level and you want to grow, that is a sign that you are indwelt by the Spirit of God and a Christian. None of us are who we should be. But all of us who are Christians have the Spirit of God within us. And so, when we do something wrong and we feel that conviction, that's a sign you are His. Or, when you hear somebody talk about Jesus, 
And it just stirs you up again. And you say, that's my Savior. That's a sign. Or you have this love sometimes welling up for him and for what he did for you. That's a sign. Those are things Satan doesn't say. You know what, guys? It's Tuesday morning. Um, Let's mix it up. You know, I'm usually shooting flaming arrows. Today, let's send loving arrows. Let's send the kind of arrows that say, I love Jesus. Zing, boom. Oh, isn't Jesus great? Satan doesn't do that. He doesn't mix it up. If there's any desire in you to please the Lord, that comes from the Lord. Satan's not doing that. See, this is why we need to be confident in our salvation. This is why we need to put on our hel- the helmet of salvation, knowing that whatever comes our way, we will be saved. No matter what we face, we will be safe. No matter how the evil one rages, we will be safe. Why? Because we're saved past, present, future. And our safety is assured. We have nothing to fear. You, if you're a Christian, you put your faith in Jesus, you should be confident and assured. Now, some people hate this teaching because they say if we preach that men and women can have assurance of faith in Jesus Christ, they can go off and live however they want. They can spurn obedience and become reckless and just live sinful lives. They do whatever they want, live however they want, and just come to church and ask forgiveness. Genuine Christians never do that. Genuine Christians never come to terms with their sin. They know it costs their Savior way too much. Jesus has died in their place. They know this. And genuine Christians are never going to say, it's no big deal. I can go out and sleep with who I want to sleep with, drink whatever I want to drink, do whatever I want to do, have unsafe, have business practices that are whatever, and then come in and go, Jesus, you're my Savior. You know, those kind of people are not people who are genuinely saved. All who live with the pattern of disobedience ought to have no conviction that they are genuine Christians. Others say that we shouldn't teach the doctrine of assurance of salvation because it's going to make people arrogant. They're going to look down on other people. And that would be entirely true if we were saved by our own efforts. (laughs) We're not! Right? We're not. There's nothing in us that has... There's nothing... We we have nothing to commend to God. If we're saved from death and hell by the sincerity of our prayers, doing our best to be kind, trying hard to apply the golden rule, then our assurance of salvation would be in ourselves. But that's not our assurance. Our assurance is in Christ. And if if your assurance of salvation is that you do good things most of the time, and you don't say too many bad things, and you try to love other people, and you think you're saved, that's the height of arrogance, friends. You're saying, I don't need Jesus. And that you will be saved by your own actions. But that is not the assurance that is trumpeted from the Scriptures. Salvation is not paid out as a wage that can be earned. It is given as a free gift of grace. How can someone who knows they have been saved by grace be proud 
of earning it. If they are, they don't understand grace. You see, our salvation speaks more to God's mercy. He doesn't give us what we deserve. And grace, He gives us way more than we could ever deserve than our sincerity and obedience. So when we talk about being assured in our salvation, we merely mean that we believe Jesus, Hebrews 7, is able to save to the uttermost all the way to the end, back again, back to the end, back again, back to the end, those who draw near to God through Him. Friends, assurance is the confidence that we should all have, Christians, that Jesus will keep us safe. Our safety is assured. Our safety is assured. And if this safety is assured, and it is, do you see why we need to be more confident, not less? I'm not talking about fake confidence that also goes by the name of self-confidence. That's a joke. I'm talking about confidence in the fact that we are His and He is ours. No matter what comes up in our lives, we're safe. Who can seize us from the grasp of Jesus Christ? Is there any force in the known or unknown universe that can pull us away from His protective care? It's raining. Yes, it's raining. We're in the desert. It's raining. There's flowers that are going to bloom. It's going to be great. And we're all going to have allergies soon. (laughs) Is there any force in uh, in the known or unknown universe that can pull us away from His protective care? Think about it. Jesus says, My sheep hear My voice, and I know them. They follow Me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Jesus says, no one. Think about it. Who can pull the real Christians away from Christ? If there was anything, is there an uncreated, eternal being out there who could turn back death and kill it? No. Only Jesus is that uncreated, eternal being who has turned back death and killed it. No one can approach His power. No one can snatch us out of our hands, not because we're faithful, but because He is mighty. See, the confidence that we need is not a confidence in ourselves, but a confidence in our Savior. We cannot be too confident in Him. We cannot. The question really, as we think about this helmet of salvation, is this. Why are we not more confident than we are? I have no idea what the Lord is going to do in our world, in our city, and in our time. But whatever He does, He will triumph. And I want to be a part of it. I want us to be a part of it. I want us to be, I want us to spend and be spent for his purposes. Because only he will build a kingdom that has no end. All of our efforts 
All of our toils, all of our work, everything we build one day will come to an end, but not the work and the building of our Lord. He builds a kingdom that can never end. Not only does it not end, it gets better and better and better. All that I build, all that we build, will end, but not what He builds. This is why we must and should be more confident in Jesus Christ. This is not triumphalism. Triumphalism says that God must use me in the way that I see fit. Or God must use us in the ways that we think make sense. Or that we must do this or that to advance His kingdom. We have no right, friends, to lay those kinds of expectations upon Him. But we can and should be expectant of what He might do. Because He has overcome Sometimes it's easy when it comes to salvation to believe that we will be safe and protected when we die. But until then, it's up for grabs. Man, Tuesday afternoon's coming, and it's coming for your head. And you think, what if? What if my son never comes back from his wanderings? Or what if my wife never gets better? Or what if I always feel this way? Or what if I never see a way out? Or what if I physically can't care for both my parents and my teenagers? See, those are the kind of things that rob our confidence. Friends, listen, if Jesus died in our place, and He has, if He rose and ascended, and He has, and if He will one day come back to get us, and He will, if He has overcome evil and the evil, the evil in the world and the evil in our lives, if He has done these things, do you think He can handle lesser challenges? Yes. Not to minimize your life's challenge or my life's challenge. But all of those challenges fall short of paying for sin and eternal death. Jesus has ensured that we will not pay the penalty for our many sins and that we will not experience eternal death. Now, if He can and does promise to do that, should our lesser challenges, real though they may be, press us down so much? No. See, when they do, that's a sign. When those lesser problems come in, and again, I'm not minimizing any problems that any of us are going through here, but all of them are lesser when it comes to eternity. See, when those problems press us down, and they get to us. You know what it's like? It's like us taking our helmet and going, that thing is hot. I'm going to throw it to the side. Kind of makes my neck a little sore. And then our confidence just gets slowly eroded that either the Lord sees and knows or that he's doing anything. Satan would love nothing more than to undermine our confidence in our champion, Jesus Christ. 
He's going to say things like this. No one can really understand your pain. If this is what it means to be a Christian, not worth it. Or, this is all just too hard. It's unreasonable. If you're not blessed in this life following Jesus, what the heck are you doing? Or, this valley of darkness is going to overwhelm you. Those waters are rising and they don't look good. They're going to take you under. You better run from Jesus while you still can. Or, all this adversity just isn't worth it. Or, look around. Look around at your life. Look at all the things you've given your life to. What a waste. What have you really done? You should be ashamed. See, it's when, he hear, when we hear these kind of whispers that we need to strap on the helmet all the tighter. Our confidence, our assurance is not based on the way that our life turns out, but on the way that the life of Jesus has turned out. Remember, we follow a crucified leader who was beaten, spit upon, mocked and crucified. We follow a man. We follow that kind of man. And if, it's, if, if we follow a man who's been crucified, it's going to follow that we will experience hardship as well. But this crucified leader who died was laid in a tomb, but he got up. In the ancient world, when people witnessed someone carrying their cross to the outside part of the city, past the, the city walls, they knew one thing and one thing for sure. That guy is not coming back. No one ever came back. But one guy did. And we follow that guy. That guy. Now, I'm interested in following a guy who died and came back and goes, hey guys, I won. I'm going to follow that guy. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't speak a word or two of those, for those of you here who are not following Jesus. As I'm calling Christians to have more confidence, I think you should have less you have no ground of confidence. You can have, you can trust Jesus and experience all kinds of confidence. Martin Luther told, gives us some good counsel. He says, either sin is with you, lying on your shoulders, or it's lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. Now, it's lying on your back. Now, if it is lying on your back, you are lost. But if it is resting on Christ, you are free and you will be saved. Choose what you want. If you're a non-believer, please trust Christ. Christians, we follow the guy that came back. So when he says, follow me, we should be confident he knows where he's going. He walked, into the, he walked to the cross, was put in the tomb, and came up and left. We should be confident that He knows where He's going. We must follow Him. Though we face unimaginable hardships, He knows where He's going. We must follow Him. Even though we increase incredibly difficult situations, He knows where He's going. We must follow Him. Even though sometimes we feel overpowering loneliness, He knows where He's going. 
We must follow Him. Even though sometimes we experience soul-sapping miseries, He knows where He's going. We must follow Him even though sometimes we feel this overwhelming drudgery. He knows where He's going. Sometimes we experience unexpected afflictions, but we follow Him because He knows where He's going. And guess what? He knows the way. You don't. I don't. None of us do. He opened the way so that compromised sinners, unholy blasphemers, profane offenders, cowardly reprobates, rebellious men and women like us might be able to follow him. He will lead us home. Now, do you think there is any power in all the universe that can cause him to lead us astray? Is there an unseen ruler or principality out there ready to trick Jesus and go, that? no. Is there an unseen demonic authority out there who can trick Jesus and, and say, take him that way? No. Or is he just tricking us? No. Is there a future enemy power that will arise and cause Jesus to lead us a different way? No. Can the devil trick him? No. Exactly. Do you see why we should be more confident? Could it be some of us have flung off our helmet? It's no accident that our helmet protects our heads, right? Brain and mind are connected. I'm not going to do a physiology lesson, but I just know that they are connected. And in the New Testament, mind and heart are nearly synonymous terms. The devil wants to destroy your confidence in Christ. One of the ways that he seeks to do this is by knowing, by whispering in your ear that nothing in your life will go how you expect it to go, ever. There's a scene in the movie version of The Return of the King in one of the many, many battle scenes. Gondor, the most important human city, is under siege. The soldiers are guarding the gate and there's this giant, burning, battering ram about to knock that gate down. Fear is etched on every soldier's face, and Gandalf says, you are soldiers of Gondor. No matter what comes through that gate, you will stand your ground. They did not. But we can. No matter what comes through the gates of our lives, no matter what comes, we have the helmet of salvation. We're going to be safe, and we can stand our ground. Not just barely, but with confidence. To put on our helmet is to forcefully remind us that Jesus is leading us all the way home. So no matter what comes through the gate, we will be safe. See, we're saved not just so that we don't have to go to hell. We're saved so that we can be confident in the Lord's ability to work in and through us. In this life, on Tuesday, here's a pro tip, it won't be like you expect. If your confidence is subject to things going like you expect, you are already defeated. But if your confidence is, is in Jesus Christ and in His ability and His strength, knowing that He is about something we cannot understand, that He is pressing forth His kingdom in ways we couldn't understand, even if He sat us down and drew it out for us and explained it to us and had diagrams, we'd go, what? We don't understand that. We can't understand that. Should we be able to understand our Savior? 
I don't want to understand my Savior. If I could, eternity would be wicked boring, but it won't be. See, we can be confident. Newton's, again, all shall work for good. Everything is needful that he sends. Nothing can be needful that he withholds. Will you understand? No way. Will it make sense? Heck no. Will you see the plan? Negative. Will it be easy? A thousand times? No. Will you walk through the valley of the shadow of death? A lot of different times. But if you follow Jesus, if you follow Jesus with the helmet of salvation strapped on, you'll be safe. This is why we need to be more confident. We need to be more confident because we can trust our Savior. See, do you see the difference that even a small church like ours can make when we are more confident in what Christ can do? We can be confident in Jesus, though he leads us through a cloud of confusion. We can be confident in Jesus, though we don't see very far down the road. We can be confident in Jesus, though flaming arrows of adversity whiz by our heads. We can be confident in Jesus, though there are giants of despair blocking our way. We can be confident in Jesus, though rocks of uncertainty fall upon us. We can be confident in Jesus, though friends walking with us fall away. We can be confident in Jesus, though we walk up the hill of disease. Why? Because we followed the guy who got up. Not to be put down again. Because Jesus is victorious. We cannot be defeated. We close. Sorry, I went long. We close with a hymn from Luther. The only hymn and the only song I want sung at my funeral I just turned 50, so I'll probably die soon. (laughs) A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he, amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great. And armed with cruel hate on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be loosing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus. It is he, the Lord of hosts, his name, from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. For God hath willed us His truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim. But we tremble not for Him. His rage we can endure. For lo, His doom is sure. One little word shall fell Him. We should be more confident in Jesus. I know I need to be more confident. If you feel like that's you, stand up, and I'm going to pray for all of us. I'm standing always, but I'm going to stand always when it comes to this. 
Jesus, I pray that you would help us to strap our helmets on and lay aside the confidence that we place in our own understanding, our own ability, our own strength. Lay aside, lay aside the confidence we have in anything but you. Lord, thank you that we can sing with gusto that you are our King who has triumphed, but you've triumphed for us and on our behalf. And now we can know for sure and for certain that the salvation you provide can be ours and is ours. So Lord, I pray that you would help us to be a confident lot. Confident in what you might do. Lord, we know that, we know that, that none of us in this room, in this church, we're not, we're not key to the plan of what you might do in this world and beyond. We're insignificant and we're small, but we serve you and you are not. And so, Lord, we ask for great confidence that you would do great things in the world that we live in, that we would see in our day you move mountains, that we would watch and look and see you work in our day in ways that we could never have imagined. Lord, may we be a people confident in you. Jesus, please, we're going to need help with that because we're weak and we're all excited right now, but tomorrow we're going to forget all about it because we're really weak, that weak, even weaker than that, probably by lunchtime even. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to keep that helmet strapped on tight, that we might be protected, knowing that because we follow the guy who got up and can't be put down, we're safe, and we will not be put down, not ultimately, because we're in you. So Lord, in our day, in our day, show yourself to be a champion. Move in power in our hearts and lives, and help us to become more confident in you. Jesus, thank you that no amount of trust or confidence is ever misplaced when it's put on you. Forgive us for all the other places we've been confident, but I pray we would be confident most in you. Thank you. Help us, Lord. Amen.